Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, our God. And thank you for listening. This evening, I'm going to present part 29 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. It is titled, Born from Above. Imagine that. This defines what is born from above. If you're familiar with my commentary on the Gospel of John, I had brought up Wisdom chapter 19, verse 6, in relation to the discourse of Yahshua Christ with Nicodemus, recorded in John chapter 3. In the last portion of this commentary, throughout chapter 18, of the wisdom of Solomon, we saw a description of the emergent world, defining John 3.16, as Solomon himself had described the world as being represented by the long garment of the high priest of Israel, which had contained 12 gemstones, representing each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. The breastplate of the garment contained little else besides those gemstones and the Urim and Thummim, which ostensibly represented the 12 tribes under the judgment and counsel of Yahweh their God. Yet Solomon described that as the whole world, where he said in verse 24, For in a long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones, was the glory of the Father's graven, and thy majesty upon the diadem of his head. This world, referring to the particular cosmos or society, and not to the entire planet, was formed by God himself as he chose the children of Israel, the seed of Abraham, to endure the trials which they had experienced in Egypt, and coming out of Egypt, to be established in his laws, and to be organized according to his word. Solomon will repeat that same profession in another way here in Wisdom chapter 19, whereby he also reveals the meaning of the phrase, born from above. And more than that, as we will discuss when we get to verse 6 of this chapter. In... Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was forewarned of this by God, where after God, after Yahweh God had made many other promises to him. We read in verse 13, and those other promises are in, began in Genesis chapter 12. So we read in verse 13, and he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. The four hundred years, as it had been reckoned by Paul of Tarsus, referring to Galatians chapter 3, and as it is evident in the historical narrative of Scripture, 
included the time from Abraham's arrival in Canaan to the subsequent sojourn of Jacob in Egypt and the period during which the Israelites were actually enslaved by the Egyptians, which was only something less than 180 years. This method of counting is verified, where in verse 16 of that same chapter of Genesis, it says that in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. And in the genealogies, it is evident that when Jacob went to Egypt with Levi, his son Kohath was already born, and Kohath was the father of Amran, the father of Moses. So Moses was the fourth generation from Jacob, and although several generations were born after him, he led them back hither to the land of Canaan, where those words were first spoken to Abraham. Much later, Paul of Tarsus, in Romans chapter 4, summarized those promises which had been made to Abraham, found in various passages in Genesis, in the conclusion that he should be the heir of the world, referring to the old Adamic world. Then, in that same chapter, as a result of that promise, he went on, or I should say Paul went on, for purposes of clarity. Paul went on to describe the world of his own time as having consisted of nations which had descended from the seed of Abraham. It certainly is true that the predominant tribes of the Adamic world in the time of Christ, Romans, Parthians, Phoenicians, and Bretons, Dorian and Danan Greeks, and Galatahi, or Scythians, had all descended primarily, or at least in large part, from the ancient Israelites, while only vestiges of certain tribes from the old Adamic world had still remained. So, consequently, it is people from these tribes, and only these tribes, to whom Paul had brought the message of the Gospel of Christ. So, according to Solomon, the children of Israel are the world of the Scriptures. And therefore, it is apparent that Yahweh God, the creator of all things, would effect his will in the world, both through them and for them. While this last conclusion may seem to be a mere conjectural extrapolation of Solomon's words. It certainly is the implication which is also affirmed rather consistently in the words of the prophets. For example, in Isaiah chapter 43, we see the complete disregard which Yahweh God had even for other Adamic nations as he carried out his will for Israel. And where the subject is Israel already taken off into the Assyrian captivity, where we read from verse 3, For I am Yahweh, thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. So he evidently wasn't concerned with saving Egypt. Ethiopia and Sheba for thee, 
so he evidently wasn't concerned with saving either Ethiopia or Sheba or Seba. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba were all overrun by Nubians and effectively destroyed, especially as compared to their former glory. By the time Isaiah had written those words at the very beginning of the 7th century BC, which was shortly after the failure of the Assyrians in the siege of Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah, if we observe those last 26 chapters of Isaiah, which are prophecies of what would happen to the children of Israel in their captivity and prophecies of the coming Messiah in relation to them and what that should mean to them. I believe it's in chapter 36, or at least in the late 30s, that the siege of Assyria fails. And Isaiah closes the work of his prophecy during the rule of Hezekiah soon thereafter, where those last 26 chapters are all written prophetically after the siege of Assyria failed, which was right around 701 BC. So Isaiah perhaps wrote those sometime between 700 to 690-something BC. Of course, we can't pin it down exactly. But likewise, we read of the punishment of the children of Israel and their correction at the expense of all the nations where they would be scattered in their captivity in Jeremiah chapter 30. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet. And none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I will make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished for their sins, which they committed to get sent into captivity in the first place. So it is Yahweh's intention that even in captivity for their punishment, the children of Israel should ultimately supplant all of the other nations. The same promise is repeated in a similar context later on in Jeremiah chapter 46. Finally, we read in Isaiah chapter 27, where it speaks once again in reference to Yahweh. He shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom in blood and fill the face of the world with fruit. These last three passages, which I've cited, I cite very often in my commentaries on both Old and New Testaments. Perhaps people think I'm repeating myself. There are dozens of passages just like these which prove the same things. If you don't understand the plain language of these 
passages and you still don't believe this message, just throw your Bible in the trash and do the world a favor. The word for world in that passage of Isaiah chapter 27, that's verse 6, is the Hebrew word tebel, which is the counterpart of the Greek word oikumene, used by Luke in chapter 2 of his gospel where he wrote that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. In reference to the Roman world, which Caesar had the authority to tax, that is the same world in the geographical sense which the lost sheep descendants of the children of Israel had already come to dominate. And therefore, they were indeed the world which had emerged in the Exodus out of Egypt in the sense of being the cosmos or society. That word cosmos is an adjective which primarily means order. And in the context of scripture, it most often refers to the order, organization, or government of the geographical world, for which reason we often translate it as society. There is more to be said concerning this long comparison of Egypt, which represents the world of the ungodly in Solomon's lengthy analogy, in contrast to Israel, which represents the emergent world in his analogy, the world going into the future. However, we shall reserve any further comment for future discussion and commence with Wisdom Chapter 19 and the ungodly or impious who are now the subject of his discussion. As for the ungodly, wrath came upon them without mercy unto the end, for he knew before what they would do. While the sense is acceptable, the last clause of this verse may have been better translated more literally, for he knew beforehand even the things coming of them, or perhaps from them. While the the Exodus account portrays Yahweh himself as having been the cause for Pharaoh to pursue the departed Israelites by hardening his heart. Here Solomon only expressed the providence of God in this matter. Throughout our commentary, we have frequently mentioned that since the beginning of Wisdom chapter 10, Solomon is making a presentation of the prayer which he had offered to Yahweh begging for wisdom upon his first having become king of Israel, as he had done in many places throughout this prayer, which we have seen spans the entirety of these last 11 chapters of wisdom. Solomon both addressed God in the second person, as he does further on here in verse 5, and described his actions in the third person as he is done here using the third-person form of a verb, which literally means to know beforehand. Saying this, the explanation of the meaning of the verse follows, where Solomon explains that the ungodly in Egypt had continued in their error even after suffering the loss of all of their firstborn on that first Passover. 
So he says in verse 2, speaking of the Egyptians, how that having given them leave to depart and sent them hastily away, they would repent and pursue them. The Greek word, metamelo, and the passive form, metamelomahi, which appears here, is not always used in the positive sense by which Christian, Christians are accustomed to understand the concept of repentance. To repent may also be to regret a decision or merely to change one's mind about something. So Liddell and Scott primarily defined the word to mean to feel repentance or to rue or regret, but then also to change one's purpose or line of conduct. Citing an example from the 4th century historian Xenophon. Here we would translate the word as regret. They would regret it and pursue them. That the Egyptians had initially given the Israelites leave to depart from Egypt, we see in Exodus chapter 12. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. This is from verse 30. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve Yahweh, as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people, that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. In other words, just get the hell out of here. We're sick of you. We're just going to be tormented more on your account. Beat it. Yet, in spite of that, they had evidently changed their minds rather quickly. As Solomon next describes, For while they were yet mourning and making lamentation at the graves of the dead, they added another foolish device and pursued them as fugitives whom they had entreated to be gone. While the translation of the King James Version is acceptable, we nevertheless chose to offer our own more literal translation. For while still having mournings at hand, and lamenting at the graves of the dead, they were persuaded by another foolish reasoning, even those whom being supplicated had departed, them they pursued as fugitives. So after the Egyptians had begged the children of Israel to depart from the land, as it is described in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, upon that departure, Yahweh had hardened the heart of the Pharaoh once again. And in Exodus chapter 14, it is explained that the Egyptians had repented, or actually had changed their minds. So here Solomon explains that they were persuaded to pursue them as fugitives. 
They were persuaded by another foolish reasoning. And in Exodus we read an account of that very thing. And it is Pharaoh himself who is depicted as having done the persuading. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihahiroth, Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon. Before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot, and took his people with him. And he took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. So it was Pharaoh who persuaded with another foolish reasoning, who is depicted as having persuaded his own people that the Israelites are entangled in the land and the wilderness has shut them in so that they would be once again an easy prey. Now Solomon explains that they had deserved the additional punishment which this action had brought them. In verse 4 of Wisdom chapter 19. For the destiny whereof they were worthy drew them unto this end and made them forget the things which had already happened, that they might fulfill the punishment which was wanting to their torments. And the verb which we have translated in verse 3 is epispao, which is literally to draw or drag after one, to pull, to pull to, or of something such as a noose, to draw tight. Therefore, it is also to attract, to gain, to win, to draw on, allure, persuade. Metaphors are basically the same in every single language. The words change. Or metaphorically, to bring on or to cause. Rearranging the definitions of the word as they are found in Liddell and Scott. But here in this verse, another verb, elko, was translated in the King James Version as drew. Which, in the present tense, is to draw. And which was typically used of something that is dragged or drawn along by force. It seems to stress the fact that the Egyptians were dragged into this situation, that they could by no means avoid it, even if they wanted to. As Yahweh God was making an example of them, 
That example also ensured the decline and demise of Egypt, as Yahweh had said in Isaiah, that he had given them up on behalf of Israel. While the sense of this translation is also generally acceptable, here in verse 4, for these and other reasons we shall offer our own more literal version for clarification. For a fitting necessity had dragged them to this end and applied a forgetfulness of the things which happened, that the punishment lacking would be added to fill their torments. There's a verb in that last clause. Pros ana plerao. It's a compound verb made of two prepositions and the verb plerao, which is simply to fill. So, pros ana plerao is, is defined as to fill up. Well, it's even more than that because ana plerao would be to fill up. To fill up or replenish besides where Liddell and Scott had cited Aristotle, or to add so as to fill up, for which they cited Plato, which is the more accurate definition for the meaning of the two prepositions, to add to something so as to assist in filling it up. So here in our translation where it is in a form belonging to the subjunctive mood, which expresses a possibility, it is would be added to fill. That does not mean that the torments would end there, but only that, only that this punishment was added to the others in the plagues of Egypt towards the ultimate fulfillment of the punishments which they were due which they had deserved. <laughs> so, all of the plagues of Egypt, up to and including the deaths of all of their firstborn, were still not enough to fill, fulfill the torments of which they were worthy, and therefore the destruction of their army was provided in addition to their earlier torments. So now Solomon makes another analogy and that thy people might pass a wonderful way, but they might find a strange death. The adjective for wonderful, paradoxus, is literally contrary to opinion or incredible, and therefore also paradoxical, as it is the very source of our English word. Here it modifies the noun odoiporia, which is way here, and describes a journey, a going on a road, Otis being a road and poria being a a form of a an actual noun that means to go or to travel over something. The verb translated as might pass, and that my people might pass, is a subjective form of pirazzo, which is more than just pass. It is to try, as to make trial of, or to test, or to tempt. 
So we would translate verse 5 to read, and that your people would be tried by an incredible journey, but they, referring to the Egyptians, would find a strange death. And that word for strange in the last clause is xenos, which in contexts such as this was used to describe something alien or unusual. So we would understand it as strange in that manner. They found an unusual death. But just as Solomon had described the children of Israel as the emergent world in the closing verses of Wisdom chapter 18, now he once again makes a very similar assertion using very different terms. For the whole creature in his proper kind was fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, that thy children might be kept without hurt. But before we can even comment on this passage, we must resolve a serious issue which, with which we have a dispute with the translation. As the word rendered as again is palin, which literally means again, nothing else. But the word translated as anew is anothen, which literally means from above and nothing else. Being translated in that manner as anew, the word is redundant and therefore rendered quite useless. Or perhaps the word which actually means again, palin is rendered useless. Since an adverb is a word that modifies or qualifies an adjective, verb, or another adverb, here, palin obviously modifies anothen, which makes no sense if anothen is interpreted as anew, since the first creation was described as having been ex nihilo, a Latin term which means from nothing, and not, and, and therefore this cannot be anew, and the first creation was not described as anew. So how could this be again anew? But anothen does not mean anew except in the doctrines of the denominational churches. Liddell and Scott define anothen as an adverb of place, from above, from on high, from the upper country, from inland. And if you read the scriptures and, and you constantly see how the apostles were described as going up to Jerusalem, and going down to Galilee or, or other places. The Greeks saw excursions from the coastlines to the inland as a going up, which is why Xenophon's famous account of the trek of the Greek mercenaries to Babylon is called Anabasis, which is a walk up. Catabasis would be a walk down.
So, in those uses, Liddell and Scott cited Herodotus, Thucydides, and Homer. And then secondarily, anothen was used as the adverb anno to signify above, something above, or on high. Although anno primarily signifies motion upwards, or to the brim, or to the top, as it is in John chapter 2, verse 7. While anothen signifies motion from upwards, something that, it was, something that is already up. Plato is cited as having used the term anothen with another word for progenitors to describe early ancestors, anothen ganais, and also in reference to time to mean from the beginning. The third century poet, the third century BC poet Theocritus, used anothen to mean by descent. The phrase hoi anothen, hoi being the masculine plural article, form of the definite article. The phrase hoi anothen, those above, was even used to distinguish the living as opposed to oikato, those below, or the dead in the tragic poets. Namely, in a play by Aeschylus titled The Libation Bearers. While other writers, other classical and Hellenistic writers, had used anno in that manner instead, hoi anno, as opposed to hoi Kato. So the adversaries of Christ knew exactly what he had meant, where he declared to them, using the same words, Anno and Kato, in John chapter 8, that ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. However, the Greek phrases are such as they should be rendered. Ye are from of those beneath, ek ton kato, ton being the genitive masculine or neuter, plural form of the definite article. Ek ton kato is from of those above, and ek ton ano. Ekton kato, I'm sorry, is from of those below. And ekton ano, from of those above. I'm getting ahead of myself in my own notes. So the Greek passage, the Greek of that passage in John chapter 8, also shows that Christ was not alone in having come from above. Ekton ano. Tone being the masculine plural form of the definite article, even though the neuter shares the same form. I don't think Christ was saying, I am from the things of above, or you are from the things below. 
He was speaking of people. Furthermore, he was not of their world because his world is the 12 tribes of the children of Israel found on the long garment of the high priest. And now Solomon attests here that they came from above. Only in the New Testament is it claimed that the word anothen can mean over again, anew. And we must reject that as an accommodation by the lexicons to church doctrine, which defies the true meaning of the term anothen, as even in the Gospel of John, on two occasions in John chapter 19. On one occasion in John chapter 3, and in the epistle of James, on three occasions in chapters 1 and 3, it is translated correctly as from above in the King James Version. So they translate it correctly when they need to. In other places in the King James Version, this word anothen is top to bottom, so it may as well be from above. In Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 15. Of time, it is from the first, just as Plato had used the word. In Luke chapter 1 and from the beginning in Acts chapter 26. Yet it is translated as again, twice in John chapter 3. Earlier than where it's translated as from above. Even in reference to being born, and in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. Yet in all three places, the natural and literal meaning of the word as from above makes perfect sense within the context of each of those passages. The word did not mean again in Greek literature. And we must therefore reject the notion that it may mean again in the New Testament as the apostles were speaking in a manner that could be understood by common people, something which Paul himself had professed in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he said in verse 19, and I'll quote the King James Version, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also, than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. If the apostles had ever been using words with peculiar meanings, contrary to the common meanings of those words, then they may as well have been speaking in unknown tongues. Because they would have been saying one thing, and the Greeks would have been hearing another thing. They cannot be attributed with these clever innovations by which the churches were corrupted with false doctrine. And often means from above, period. It never means again. As for the phrase that were given to them, I cannot find equivalent Greek words in this passage in either the Greek edition of Ralph with the variant readings it provides or those which were employed by Brenton, mostly the 
Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandrinus, I believe, or it might have been the Codex Alexandrinus and the Codex Vaticanus, perhaps. I really forget. I think it was the Vaticanus. I could be wrong. But with this and other differences that we have with the translation of the passage in the King James Version, but which we shall only discuss briefly here, we shall translate verse 6 of Wisdom chapter 19 to read, For the whole creation within its own race was perfectly formed again from above, serving its commandments in order that your sons may be kept unharmed. First, we esteem the pronoun, sahis, which is feminine singular. To refer back to the feminine singular noun, ketesis, and not to God, Solomon wasn't addressing God with a feminine singular pronoun, as the King James Version has the translation. But the manuscript which Brenton employed for his edition of the Septuagint reads its own rather than its, still in the feminine. The children of Israel were a society formed again from above, as Adam was the son of God from above, Luke 3.38. And they were formed to serve according to the same commandments which man had failed to serve from the beginning not even being able to keep the first commandment, which was not to touch or eat, I should say, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So while in Genesis, on several occasions, we see that the creation of God was in keeping with kind after kind, we see here that this creation was formed within its own race or kind the Greek word being genos, which is a race, stock, or family, and therefore also a class, sort, or kind. But when we speak of a sort or kind of people, we must be speaking of the people of one race, of the same particular race. Here the Greek word, the Greek verb, Diatupto, diatupa, diatupao. I'm sorry. Some of those Greek verbs, when it, when the next last letter is an A or a short O, the omicron, and the last letter is an omega, they're kind of difficult to pronounce. And who the hell knows how the Greeks pronounce them? <laughs> because they're tongue twisters to me. The Greek verb. And I'll just say diatupo. Tupo is tupao is to form or make an impression. It's the very word from which we get our word type, T-Y-P-E. And I should say dia if I want to pronounce the preposition correctly, which means through or by. The Greek verb diatupao is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean to form perfectly. Or using an example that was speaking in reference to the laws of the Greeks. As the third century rhetoric, I'm sorry, second century rhetorician, second century AD, 
rhetorician Lucian of Samosata had used the term, speaking of those laws of the Greeks, to give them a lasting form. So, it is to form perfectly, and therefore it is evident that here Solomon describes the whole creation as the organization of the children of Israel, who were specimens of their own kind or race, just as Yahweh God, in his account of the creation, had created everything kind after kind. Therefore, he also described them here as having been perfectly formed in order to serve the commandments which he had assigned to that creation, and asserting in that manner that they would be kept unharmed. Yet only the children of Israel were ever given those commandments by God. The book of Genesis, for instance, was only revealed to the children of Israel. And once again, they are the only subjects of this creation which Solomon described. As we have often cited, the author of the 147th Psalm rejoiced that the law was given only to the children of Israel, where he wrote, speaking of Yahweh, that he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He had not dealt so with any nation. Why? because God already decided to make a full end of them all. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. And over this, the psalmist was so happy that he ended it with the words, Praise ye Yahweh! Serving the commandments of God, the children of Israel are indeed kept unharmed. Thus we read in Revelation chapter 22, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. That city, the city of God, was described as having the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on its gates. And its foundation stones were essentially the same stones as the gemstones on the breastplate which was affixed to the long garment of the high priest. So they are the world which Solomon describes here as having been fashioned again from above if one is not from one of those tribes. By no means shall one enter into that city as there is no gate with one's name on it. Yahshua Christ himself had said, as it was recorded in John chapter 3, in spite of the mistranslations which had been perpetrated by the churches, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. He won't see it from the inside, he won't see it from the outside, he won't see it from afar, and he won't see it on YouTube. Now here in wisdom we may see what it is to be born from above. Then we read in Isaiah chapter 44, where it addresses the children of Israel in punishment in the Assyrian captivity. Yet now, hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, 
Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, who will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. No other nation, no other nation on earth of any other people can make this claim that Yahweh spoke these words for him, for them, that he formed them from the womb. Only the children of Israel had this claim. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And nobody else, nobody else ever will have that promise. The children of Israel, <clears throat> fashioned in a womb by Yahweh God himself, are therefore born from above, just as Yahshua Christ had been fashioned in the womb of his mother by God himself. There and elsewhere in Isaiah, the children of Israel are called the servant of God. Even in their blindness, as we see in Isaiah chapter 42, who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, as blind as Yahweh's servant? And just as the Egyptians were dragged through history for their destruction, the children of Israel are going to be dragged through history for their good. The phrase, which even the King James Version had translated as the whole creature here, Hale Heketesis, is the whole creation. As the word Ketesis is primarily a founding or foundation and then a creating or creation. Here it is clear that Solomon is referring to the children of Israel as the whole creation, just as he had also professed that in the long garment of the high priest, where only the 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel and the Urim and Thummim were found, that represents the whole world. The children of Israel, being a perfectly formed creation of their own kind or race, are indeed what is born from above. So now, using further language, which evokes the creation of Genesis chapter 1, to describe how the children of Israel were formed again from above. Solomon continues to describe that incredible journey by which they had made their flight from Egypt. And using this poetic language which evokes Genesis in his allegories, he is basically signaling to us what he means by the whole creation being fashioned again from above. I couldn't, I, I was starting to cite the King James Version and couldn't bear to say anew. <laughs> so we see the presence of Yahweh God in verse 7. As namely, 
a cloud shadowing the camp, and where water stood before, dry land appeared, and out of the Red Sea, a way without impediment, and out of the violent stream, a green field. The presence of Yahweh described as a cloud shadowing the camp, and the language evokes Genesis chapter 1, where we read in verse 2, that darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Then a little on, a little further on in verse 9, and God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So Solomon is also evoking that language. And where water stood before, dry land appeared. Then, drawing an image which is apparently derived from the Genesis gathering of the waters, here it is represented as if it had come by the violent rushing of streams, and which resulted in a green field of grass. However, the word translated as stream in the King James Version is cludon, which is a wave, or the surf, or even a flood. In any event, it seems that Solomon was also purposely evoking something which we read a little further on in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 10, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so, and the earth brought forth grass. So while the first creation was from above, which the word of God had caused to appear ex nihilo, or from nothing, now this creation, which was formed again from above, is the children of Israel as the emergent world, as Yahweh God had announced in the promises to Abraham in Genesis, and also later throughout the words of his prophets, that it is their destiny to supplant the more ancient Adamic world which was created in Genesis. Now, describing their relative joy as they pass safely through the sea, we read, where through all the people went that were defended with thy hand, seeing thy marvelous, strange wonders. And the verb panethni, the adverb, I'm sorry, it's right in front of me, but I just couldn't say the syllable. The adverb panethni, translated as all the people here, literally means with the whole nation or even with all the nation. For the purpose of clarity, we would translate verse 8 to read, where it is still speaking of the parting of the Red Sea, through which all the nation had passed, being shadowed by your hand, having beheld marvelous wonders. I don't know where the King James Version had gotten marvelous, strange wonders from two words. They have three. I guess sometimes that's permissible 
here it's a little strange that they added that word strange. I'm sorry. Regarding the cloud shadowing the camp, as we have just seen here in verse 7, the children of Israel are described as having been shielded by the presence of Yahweh as they pass through the Red Sea, as we read in Exodus chapter 14. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. Having been shielded, they are next described as having rejoiced. In verse 9, For they went at large, and that's also a strange addition. For they went at large like horses, and leaped like lambs, praising thee, O Lord, who had delivered them. Now, there are no Greek words in the text for which the King James Version has at large. And the verb in the first clause, nemo, does not mean to go or to come. But it is translated here as went, which it certainly doesn't mean. The word primarily means to deal out, to distribute, or to dispense, for which it was frequently used of food and drink. However, in the passive voice, as it is here, you're the recipient of the action. So, it is generally to pasture, to graze, to feed on, or also to be fed. In reference to horses, and it has some other uses in other contexts, in reference to horses, the first clause should read, for they were fed like horses, or for they grazed like horses. This should not be taken as a reference to the quail mothers, to which Solomon is about to refer, as they are something which a horse would not eat. But perhaps it could be construed to refer to the manna, which the children of Israel had collected in the fields. Now, commenting generally on Solomon's account here in these last few verses, and the importance which he has assigned to this event, as the whole creation having been formed again from above, Polytarsus also seems to have noted the significance of this event in the foundation of Israel, where he wrote to the Corinthians concerning their common ancestors in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual meat not talking about quail mothers, <laughs> and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Then in the subsequent verses, Paul went on to warn them, to warn them not to commit fornication, as some of their fathers had done in the race-mixing event at Balpeor ostensibly so that they would remain a perfectly formed creation of their own kind or race. Now Solomon speaks of the state of awareness 
which the children of Israel must have had as they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, witnessing their own salvation in the face of the destruction which had come upon Egypt. In verse 10, For they were yet mindful of the things that were done while they sojourned in the strange land, how the ground brought forth flies instead of cattle, and how the river cast up a multitude of frogs instead of fishes. Here Solomon is recalling events which were recorded in Exodus chapter 9, that Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. Then, a little later, although there is no specific reference to the flies from coming from out of the land, there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. So he describes the people as if they still had these things in mind, had known why they happened as they passed through the Red Sea, and for that reason, they praised God for their own deliverance. But now in contrast to that, he describes one of their first punishments, implying that the plagues of Egypt, which the people had maintained in their memories here, were soon thereafter forgotten. And although in their having been fed with quails, or as we have already explained, with quail mothers, with birds having meat of a strange taste, as he had described in Wisdom chapter 16, they were nevertheless fed with meat. The analogy he had made earlier in Wisdom was that even though they were being punished in an odd way for demanding food, as they had accused God of having brought them into the desert to die, they were nevertheless preserved and fed meat as they had demanded. So we read in verse 11, But afterwards they saw a new generation of fowls, when being led with their appetite, they asked delicate meats. That Greek word, genesis, is generation here. Where in modern English, it would be race, or of birds, perhaps species is more appropriate. As we had discussed in our commentary on Wisdom chapter 18, verse 12, Used to people, it refers to their race or descent. Here, that meaning is rather obvious. According to Exodus chapter 16, the children of Israel took their journey from Elim, and all the congregation came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. So, Ostensibly, after a mere six weeks in the wilderness, they began to rebel, complaining to Moses that would to God we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by flesh pots, because they'd rather have full bellies than hardship and life, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And how do we see around us now, in this present world, that things haven't changed one bit? That men would rather have full bellies in slavery 
than have liberty through hardship. How many times have we seen this? A reference to that event is first found in Wisdom in the opening verses of chapter 16. And because the word translated as quails is actually a Greek word which means quail mothers, a different variety of bird which was evidently not eaten regularly, but which is said to travel with quails as they migrate, we will amend that here as we read Solomon's earlier reference from the King James Version, where he wrote that instead of which punishment, dealing graciously with thine own people, thou prepared for them meat of a strange taste, even quail mothers to stir up their appetite, to the end that they, desiring food, might for the ugly sight of the beasts sent among them loathe even that which they must needs desire, but these, suffering penury for a short space, might be made partakers of a strange taste. Quails are not inherently ugly, yet these quail mothers were apparently not very appetizing in either their appearance nor for their taste. In Exodus chapter 16, Moses declared to the people, that when Yahweh shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. So, as Solomon had described the event, the meat of a strange taste should have discouraged the people from demanding flesh, with the result that they would be satisfied with the manna. But now he says, in verse 12 of Wisdom chapter 19, For quails came up under them from the sea, for their contentment. Once again, of course, as we have already discussed, and as it is also in the Exodus account in the Septuagint, the word for quails is a plural form of ortogometra, which is a quail mother, from the words ortugos, or quail, and matra, or mother a bird which migrates with the quails, which is also mentioned in classical Greek writings. The quail mothers were not described as delicate meat in Wisdom chapter 16, but here Solomon only refers to what the people may have requested and not necessarily to what they had received. But the word translated here as paramuthia, which may mean encouragement, exhortation, or consolation, may also simply mean persuasion, and even diversion, or a relief from, or an abatement of something. In those last senses, we can find that Solomon's words do not necessarily disagree with his conclusions concerning this same event in chapter 16. And the children of Israel were offered the quail mothers, both to discourage them from demanding flesh, as he had said in that chapter, and as an abatement of their rebellion, where they did demand flesh. There are ten more verses left for us to discuss in this Wisdom of Solomon. And we hope to return to them soon, where we shall present a Requiem for the Wicked. That's the title of the next and final presentation in this commentary.
Solomon having discussed their fate on one last occasion in the closing verses of this chapter. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.